Welcome to the Civic Agora, a podcast from the Sanford Civics Initiative, where we discuss ideas on democracy and citizenship. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Civic Agora. I'm your host, Javier Mejia. And today I have the great pleasure of being with Brian Coyne. Brian is a lecturer in political science here at Stanford, and he's also a member of the faculty steering committee of the Stanford Civics Initiative. We're going to be talking with Brian about civic education and public reasoning. Brian, how are you? Thanks, Javier. I'm uh, doing great and happy to be here with you on uh, the Civic Agora. Thank you. I'm very, very happy that uh, you're joining us. And I would like to start our conversation uh, by asking you about your life. Mm -hmm. So I know that you're from New Jersey, right? Um, and you've been in the Bay for quite a while. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask you about, well, how you ended up here, but also about the path that took you into political mm -hmm. theory, political philosophy. Mm -hmm. What what was that path like? Yeah, thanks for asking, Javier. So I think two things I would highlight are when I had a really influential uh, history teacher in high school who first got me interested in, in current events and politics. Um, he helped me see that it wasn't just something happening in Washington far away, that it was something that all of us as citizens can and should care about. He ran a club called Model Congress, which you might be familiar with, where we pretended to be members of Congress and debated with each other after school. I was one of the extremely cool kids in high school, as you can infer from that. Um, but I, at first I thought about it, it was just a hobby because ever since I was a kid, I'd wanted to be an architect. And so when I started as an undergrad at Harvard, I was planning to major in engineering because that was kind of the way into architecture. About halfway through the first semester, I realized that uh, majoring in engineering was not going to be super promising for me, that I didn't have skills for the math that was required. Um, and also, I started to realize that ultimately what, I, what had interested me in, about architecture was not kind of buildings as like sculptures, but the way that... What I was interested in was the way the built environment shapes our lives as individuals, as groups. And so then I came to see that, that maybe actually these two interests that I had of politics and design of spaces were not that dissimilar after all. Um, you know, often we talk metaphorically about politics as the kind of architecture of societies. Um, but I, th I think there's something to that. These are the you know, use the Rawlsian phrase, the, the basic structures that, that shape our lives and the right. way that the shape of a street or a house or a city can shape our lives. Well, you know, those are the physical structures, but um, laws are, are structures as well. And so um, that shift ended up feeling less like a shift than, than I realized at first. Um, I didn't quite know that I wanted to go into academia at the time, um, but by about halfway through college, I had realized that, that I really loved universities and I loved uh, learning. And I sort of remember when I found out that you should get paid to go to graduate school. It's so exciting. Um, and so I've uh, been in academia ever since. Yeah, it's funny that people frequently 
talk about how nice working environments are these big tech uh, campuses that they have been long tables and volleyball courts and so on. We have that in um, many universities, probably not in all of them, but, um, and, and I think we forget about how privileged we are, right? Yeah. Again, you know, um, to be part of an organization, a community that is dedicated to thinking about these interesting questions is, um, it's an amazing privilege and it's, you know, grateful to, to be able to be part of a university, not just, not just for four years as I thought initially, but as a, as a career. That's fantastic. And let me use, um, this interest that you have described for coming all but three mm-hmm. if you want yeah. to ask you about a paper that you wrote that I want to make sure that I have the title right here. It's Factual Disagreements and the Possibility of Public Reason. And there what you try to do is to think about how we can build this idea of public reason. Mm-hmm. Only reason. I'm going to ask you actually to tell us what that means when people disagree on facts, mm-hmm. right? So maybe there's and that's so complicated question, which is what do we do when people disagree on opinions? Mm-hmm. But what happens when on top of that, people just see reality differently, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, they think that what has happened is different, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me about that paper. Like what's, what's your point there and what's this? the answer to that question. Yeah, thanks for that, Javier. So, um, you know, some ways, like, all of democratic politics, all of democratic theory is about how to manage disagreement, right? We disagree on policies. What should the, the tax rate be? What should the speed limit be? Um, those are things that we have to come to some decision on, at least provisionally. Process, some of us win, some of us lose, but this idea of public reason uh, that comes from um, John Rawls uh, is that there are some things that we don't have to and probably shouldn't take positions. There are kind of deep moral questions that are part of of who each of us is as a person, um, but that a, a liberal state ought not to be in the business of deciding what's the best way to live or, or what moral truths are right or wrong. Um, and, you know, the place where all starts there is, is this idea that he called the fact of reasonable pluralism, the idea that in a modern society, unlike in some of the uh, ancient societies where democracy was first developed, um, we treat this diversity of moral views as not a sign that, that of criminality and, and not as something uh, that's regrettable, but as something that is a natural result of people, you know, working things out for themselves and is something that is not going to go away in the future. It's not like we're just sitting there waiting until we all come to an agreement on moral questions um, and is, is not a sign that some people are crazy or evil or misguided. So that's why he calls it uh, the fact of reasonable pluralism, that people can be uh, can disagree strongly about these moral questions and all of them still be equally reasonable. So um, this idea of public reason is is an attempt to to offer a way for us as citizens or especially as public officials, as Supreme Court justices, 
to try to reason in a way that can be understandable to our fellow citizens, even accepting that they have different moral views. So it asks us to, when we are making decisions, to only base those decisions on reasons that our fellow citizens could reasonably be expected to comprehend, even given their differing uh, moral views. Now, that won't get us to a consensus in politics. As I said, you know, politics is always about managing disagreement. Um, but it can hopefully get us to this other important bar of legitimacy where people can say something like, well, I, uh, I'm bummed out that we decided to have the speed limit be 55 instead of 65 because um, I think we should, you know, put more of a priority on speed and less of a priority on safety. But... Speed and safety are both reasons that I can, like, understand and we can disagree about. It would be very different if we said, okay, we're going to um, ban the consumption of pork because eating pork is a sin, according to my holy book here. That would be something that someone else who has a different uh, religious or moral view would be, it would be totally, like, outside, outside there, the box. Outside the box. Exactly. And so... So public reason asks us to to do this kind of act of sympathy, I guess, and say, okay, well, how would things look from the point of view of... So, uh, so Rawls develops how this might work. Um, but it's also... Rawls doesn't talk much about this because I think he didn't see it as a big problem. Um, it kind of assumes that... that we're going to agree on what the underlying facts are. Um, if we disagree about, so if we agree about the facts, and those can be kind of the shared foundation on which we have differing ideas about the, the normative views or the moral questions. But if we also disagree about the facts, and this is what I talk about in the paper, then we don't have that shared foundation. So the, the example that I focused on most in the paper was climate change. Um, Reasonable people might disagree about what the best response to climate change is, but if some people deny as a matter of fact that anthropogenic climate change exists, then it's not clear how we can speak to them. Uh, so then, yeah, so that's why the paper is about kind of, is this, are we coming up against the limits of this possibility of public reason? And how do you, how do you bring that issue into the classroom, right? Um, because in a certain way, the classroom plays us up this microcosmos of society. Mm -hmm. And in particular, we're going to talk about the details of your classes in a mm -hmm. way that are, if anything, like opening the door for like those type of discussions. Mm -hmm. Um, but what, like in practical terms, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Great. Well, so. I mean, the classroom case is interesting because in some ways it is a microcosm of the democratic polity. You know, we ate with, it, with each other, we discussed. Um, but in some ways it isn't. There are at least two ways in which it isn't uh, exactly parallel. So one, in there are a couple ways. So within, uh, one way that it isn't parallel is that in the classroom we don't need to come to a final answer. In the polity, we have to come to some, polity, some policy decision, either, you know, 
speed limit is 55 or 65. Either we invest in green energy or we don't. Um, but in the classroom, you know, we can keep disagreeing. And at the end of class, we can keep disagreeing and go our separate ways. That's fine. We don't need to come to a single course of action. Because we're not kind of about. That's one way in which it's not parallel. And that, and that makes it easier for us, right? Like if we disagree, you know, that's okay. Um, the other thing, though, is that uh, classroom, like a democratic polity, does have an authoritative figure, which, you know, in my classes is me, and in your classes is you. And so in my classes, if a student denies that anthropogenic climate change exists, they're simply wrong. So on the day we talk about, uh, you know, climate change and justice and class called justice, um, gives an optional reading the, uh, scientific consensus paper from the IP, um, and the, uh, panel scientists uh, a couple of years ago. And, and that's just sort of the, the factual background. So it's part of my role as the instructor to stipulate what the factual background is, um, Students are free to have their own views about that, but and then the facts here you limit Yeah. So so yeah, so that's uh, another way in which, you know, the classroom and the polity are, are different. Um another way that the classroom and the polity are different and you know, I'm going on long, but I think this is gonna connect to some of your other questions. Ross has this interesting quote, Ross is a theme right now. It's not a Ross is a democratic society uh, is not and cannot be a community. If by a community we mean a group of people who are assumed to share values and share goals. Um, by that definition of a community, a university is a community. We share values. They're laid out in the Stanford Charter. You can see what the Stanford values are. Um, and we share specific goals. So if someone like is acting contrary to the Stanford values, well, you know, fundamental standard comes in and they get in trouble. If someone is acting contrary to the Stanford goals, well, at minimum, if they're a student, they aren't going to get a very good grade. Um, so that that kind of shows how uh, we have a different relationship to each other in a classroom and in a university than than we do as as co-citizens. Okay, that's very interesting. And I'm curious about this um, hierarchical role in the classroom that you described. Uh, I want to ask you about how you bring that role into action in other type of settings, right? So, because for me, it seems very reasonable that it can be, you can use your authority to clearly define what are the facts and mm -hmm. limit the conversation. Um, but also you want to, I guess that at some point, um, if some space to allow the conversation to take place, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, otherwise the discussion then, like, I mean, if it's like a fully authoritarian figure, then there's no authority for discussion, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm curious about how you deal with decisions that try to close the door to the conversation itself, right? The type of uh, of uh, approaches of people saying, you know, this type of conversation is uh, offensive in a certain way that 
reasonable people wouldn't mm -hmm. agree, but still mm -hmm. that it's a fairly um, aggressive way of uh, mm -hmm. approaching the thing. What's the, what's the way in which you deal you deal with those type of mm -hmm. situations? Yeah. Uh, that is simply bringing up the like it's not authority mm -hmm. enough in those contexts. Uh, how, yeah. how do you deal with those things? Good. Um, I mean, so in part, you know, um, I don't want to overstate the authoritarian side of my teaching. Um, uh, but part of an instructor's role is to set the tone and the values of, you know, the shared thing we're doing together class. Um, and one of those values, which is always implicit and often made explicit in the syllabus from the first day, is that um, we have shared norms of, of respect for each other, um, that we are, are obligated to, to treat each other with, with respect and dignity and so forth. Um, and so, you know, that that's on me to establish and to maintain that over the course of the quarter. Um, the other thing I'll say, though, is that even a political science class, this connects back to what I said before, is not about debating politics. And often people who have never been in a political science class think we like that they're debating, you know, what should the speed limit be or who should we elect in the next election? That's not it at all. Um, we're talking about the texts, and we're talking about the ideas and how they relate to each other. And so the, virtually the thing, mm. the scenario that you are raising of someone being uh, angry, class offended about the conversation um, does, has, I think, never occurred in my classes because, you know, people, uh, are rightly passionate about different interpretations of Rawls passages or, or Locke passages, but never quite to the point of being offended by it. Um, so it's never should our society adopts, you know, justice is fairness. How can what's Rawls saying here, and how can we understand it? How does it relate to this other thing that this other author said last week? That's the kind of question that we talk about in political science classes. Um, and so once again, it's it's different from the kind of questions that we talk about as, as co-citizens. Right. That's interesting. I think that says a lot about how the public and the public opinion universities are portrayed as this indoctrination center. Yeah. There's actually most of what we do is have reasonable conversations about mm -hmm. ideas and, and the conditions are in general fairly appropriate for mm -hmm for those discussions. Right? Yeah. And and I want to ask you now that uh, we're getting into the details of your teaching about mm -hmm. one of your courses that it's citizenship in the 21st century. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to ask you about some details of that, but one thing that I'm particularly curious is about the 21st century part of it. Yeah. And why is that necessary? And I guess mm -hmm. the question there is... Uh, how is different uh, the role of a citizen today than it was the 19th century or degrees? Um, what, what do our students need to know about citizenship mm -hmm. that it's particular of this historical context? Yeah, great. Um, I guess one thing I'd say is, is a, a cool thing about doing this at Stanford is we have a long history of teaching 
uh, classes on citizenship. Um, we found in the archives this wonderful uh, essay from a long defunct campus publication about the new class on citizenship that was being ruled out in 1923. Mm. Uh, and what's really interesting is that the history professor who wrote it says, like, um, well, we all know there's all this wild stuff happening in political affairs and global affairs, so clearly our class has to respond to that stuff. Um, and he said, like, you all know what it is. I don't even have to, like, I don't even have to lay it out. Um, you know, you have to, like, remind yourself a little bit. But, um, you know, thinking about the stuff that was happening then. So World War One had just happened and many Stanford students fought in it. Some had died. Um, American women had just won the right to vote. Um, the monarchical systems of Europe had just, you know, collapsed at once. You had the Russian Revolution. Um, uh you have, you know, massive increase in inequality in the United States. So all this stuff happening and um the class, you know, tried to respond to like those specific things. So likewise, our class today is trying to respond to like specific issues that are that are out. So, you know, we talk about um why people might be attracted to authoritarianism. We talk about this question of how to do uh, democratic citizenship under conditions of uh, deep diversity of religion, of ethnicity, of moral views, of political polarization. Um, we talk about how to manage uh, new technologies as part of citizenship. So a, a good class on citizenship, there's always an implied like in this century. It's not a, it's not like a physics class where you're studying something that is, that's been there, you know, forever. Um, so that's that's part of it. Um, the other thing I'll say is, you know, these citizenship classes went out of fashion for good reason, because the old ones were all sort of, let us now revere the greatness of this parade of dead white men from history. Um, we don't do that anymore for, for a variety of very good reasons. Um, and so there's something a little bit, the title strikes some people as like a throwback. You know, but kind of consciously, we want to reclaim it. And we want to uh, establish a, in a way of thinking about and teaching and doing citizenship. That is, uh, that's you know, has room for for being critical, has room for a diversity of voices. That um, isn't just you know, let us now revere the greatness of, of these past writers and thinkers. Um, so a metaphor that we use in the class is that citizenship is a rough draft. That citizenship, in the sense of all the institutions and norms and laws that we use to cooperate together in large groups. It's never finished once and for all. And so what we try to do with the students is to give them the skills to join that ongoing conversation about how ought we cooperate together. And quality in that, um, hopefully, is what differentiates us from, you know, the the old kind of jingoistic way of teaching this um, that came before. Tell me more about... Um about how you teach this class, right? So yeah. this offer to all the freshmen, yeah. right? And that applies pretty di 
perspective. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, how do you deal with uh, with that? How do you talk to the creator genius on that? Yeah, great. And so, so one thing I should say just for context is I am teaching this class, but it is not my class. This is um, uh, something that really the whole university is creating together. This is a a program that, as you said, uh, all freshmen eventually are going to be taking. Um, and so the curriculum, the syllabus, the readings, all of it is created through a big, complicated, multi-stakeholder process. Um, and so I don't, I don't want to overstate my uh, role in it. Um, but certainly, everyone who's thinking about this class is thinking about the question that you raised. On you know, when we teach political science classes. We don't really think about this, but we have students who have chosen to be in a political fight. Um, teaching a required class is different. Um, and so, you know, one thing that we think about when we're thinking about designing curriculum and thinking about how to teach at a day-to-day basis is how to make the case that citizenship is not just some, like, you know, it's not just underwater basket weaving, some, like, idiosyncratic thing that you might be interested in, but but, you know, is not relevant for most people. Um, so in part, you know, we uh, refer back to the values of Stanford. As I said, Stanford is not, Stanford, unlike a democratic polity, is not neutral on values. We have, like, specific values that are written down in the founding charter and the stuff. Um, among these are... Uh, teaching students to become good citizens of a liberal democracy. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so that, that's in the background. That's why we're teaching this class. Um, but also we think about that influences the fact that in the class we talk about citizenship as any kind of large-scale self-governing cooperation. So, you know, the political case is, is the central case, but uh, being part of other groups is potentially citizenship also, if they are self-governing in a certain way. And that, that helps draw in students who are interested in other things. Um, we talk about sometimes even scientific communities as self-governing communities. Um, just consciously try to bring in texts and examples that, that aren't just drawn from community. You're asking now about um, another course that has a deeper print of yours, which is justice, right? Um, and I remember talking with you at some point and uh, saying that you, one of the things that at some point you intended with the course was to respond to a view that was maybe hegemonic that had roles as the hero of the myth, right? I remember probably your words were something like there's some people that think that it was security and then roles came from right? And I want to ask you, we have talked quite a bit about roles, but I guess probably a reasonable question is what's the deal with roles? Mm-hmm. How many economists and roles? We know about roles, but roles is a minor figure. Mm-hmm. So we deal with... Uh, collective action and you think about different rules that you can have 
you can maximize uh, interview function and mm-hmm. sort of like mean max approach that is like the rules in approach. And that's it. And you don't talk about roles much anymore besides maybe the veil of ignorance or something. Mm-hmm. But I came to be surprised how influential it is in, in several circles. So tell me what's the deal with role yeah. first and then what's that feature that you think it's probably mm-hmm. overrated or what's the dimension that we should reconsider mm-hmm. about roles at least when we think about distributional okay. yeah thanks for that Javier so um uh yeah so so in justice you know I, I change the syllabus every year um this year we read roles on two days so it, it's not you know central we're not like you know reading the stuff from start to finish at all um but it does offer a way of thinking about questions of justice that does provide a lot of the, the orientation for the course. So at the start of the quarter, um, you don't have to d- define what justice is. Because sometimes justice is defined very narrowly. The justice system, the laws and punishments, sometimes it's defined very widely as everything about a good society or even a good life. On um, the first day of class, I say the particular kind of justice that we're going to focus on is this question of how should we divide up the benefits and burdens of social cooperation? Um, now, that is a way of uh, explaining the question of distributive justice. Rolf, I'm free to invent questions of distributive justice, but that kind of formulation comes from him, and I think it, it captures a couple things that, that go way beyond his specific answer to that question, which we talked about in one day, um, but that way of thinking about the question is super useful for a couple of reasons. So one is that it indicates that the laws and policies that we uh, have in our society are human creations, and, you know, not all ways of thinking about political philosophy take that to be the case. So that's that obvious. Exactly. So that's a kind of background assumption of, of this court. Um, uh, so not only like the laws and policies are human creations, but also like how they are, um, how they are dividing up. Who gets what? Back also an artifact of human stuff. And that's, that's an important question because, or that's an important point because that opens us uh, up to thinking about it in a way that would be closed if we said like, okay, everyone um, has their rights and now how do we respect them? And sort of take it as, as open, who's going to get what? Um, the other thing I like about that question is it, is it, you know, centers this idea of social cooperation, which is something that is a theme across so one of my courses is this idea that politics is about figuring out how to cooperate in large group in groups that are too large for you to manage it just by your personal one to one relationships. And that's kind of how I think about the difference between ethics and policy. Uh, like a very, very abstract scale. Um, as I say to the students on the first day, the really cool thing about social cooperation is that I mean an economist don't have said it, I do. Um, when we cooperate, we produce not the sum of what we could produce individually, but much more. Then we have this interesting question of how do we divide up those extra benefits that only exist because of our social cooperation. 
it's true that it's not an obvious way of thinking about the problem. And although the economics we talk regularly about inequality, mm-hmm. um, just framing it as the fact that cooperation has just benefits and cause, yeah, it's a completely different approach. Mm-hmm. But it's exactly at the core. Exactly, and the reason that I um, that I like that framing as opposed to the well, is inequality good or bad framing is, I think the the latter framing is inequality good or bad. Um, I think it kind of presupposes libertarianism, right? It, it presupposes that like the distribution that exists whenever you happen to snap your fingers is like the the kind of conceptually privileged one. And any departures from that must be uh, justified in a really strong way. Whereas, you know, saying said, okay, if we're going to cooperate, how should we divide up the benefits and burdens? That takes it as more open. Right, right, right. Yeah. It makes immediate libertarian of like distribution, like assignments, uh, about, like acceptable eventually, at least part of the car. Exactly. Um, you know, and so, like, um, a critique that Nozick Libertarian makes of Rawls, he says, Rawls is imagining the state as like giving stuff out to people, um, like a parent distributing presents to children, and they can do it equally or unequally. Um, I think it's actually Nozick who makes that mistake. Nozick uh, forgets that Almost everything we have only exists in the first place because of social cooperation. Right. Now, once we have this question of how should we divide up the benefits and burdens of social cooperation, um, you know, libertarianism is one possible answer. So the course doesn't like presuppose that libertarianism is false, but it also doesn't presuppose that it's true. I want us to talk much more about that, but um, I would like to, I mean, I'm going to probably what we should do is have an entire conversation mm-hmm. about this to rehab justice. We'd love to do that. I, I would like to close, uh, to find a way to close the conversation, mm-hmm. connecting it uh, with the beginning and the the anecdote you mentioned about your um, your high school teacher who yeah. um, makes me think about the role of mentors. Right? And, and I personally have learned a lot from you. And I would like to hear about how you think about that role as a mentor? Because teaching, in addition to going there, give a lecture and transmit knowledge to these young, fertile minds, uh, comes with probably these extra responsibilities. And you have mentioned some of this already mm-hmm. in the sense of defining the tone of how the conversation should take place in the room and and how you're responsible for the sake you know, mm-hmm. to support students and so on. But how do you think about that that role and that responsibility? Yeah, um, yeah, I think of, of mentorship is is really central to my role um, as a as a lecturer at Stanford. Um, you know, in, in some ways, it it's kind of just continuous with what we do in the classroom. So you know, we talk as a group of 170 justice, and then. Uh, on a good day, a couple of students will come after at the end of class and ask questions. Right before that, a uh, conversation in an office hour. Um, so that, that's always part of it. Um, and, you know, sometimes when students say, I didn't understand this 
you know, Rawls on the first reading, I must be not fit for political piety. No, no, no. First, I say Rawls is really hard. It's okay. Everyone has trouble understanding him. Um, and then I say, you know, there are multiple parts to a class on purpose. There is the reading you do independently. There is lecture, there's section, there's office hours, and all of these together are part of how we understand this hard stuff. And so it's, you know, it's not a, a surprise or a knock against you if you don't fully understand it after having only done one of those. So mentorship in the sense of, of you know, individual conversations with students is, is, is a part of the teaching. You know, I'm also really lucky to get to, to sometimes help students on standard projects like theses. Um, I worked last year with the Center for Ethics and Society, and so I got to be there. The students took their 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 senior honors theses from ideas to perspectives, which was really exciting. And that's um, yeah, that's that's one of my favorite parts of this job. Thank you. I mean, thanks for that, and thanks for um, like sharing that spirit. That's one of the things that I've learned from you. Mm, right? Thank so you. That, so that's the way in which you're being a mentor, mm -hmm. like more broadly, like speaking. So I uh, appreciate that. And I appreciate your time and uh, very kind uh, approach to our our chat. We'll have to meet again to talk about uh, inequality yeah. and distribution on just, uh, justice. And to have you, thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast. It's, it's a pleasure to talk and a pleasure to get to be part of this amazing project of Civic Agora. No, thank you. See you soon. Hey. Thank you for tuning in today to the Civic Agora, brought to you by the Sanford Civics Initiative. Don't forget to stay connected with us on YouTube and Spotify, where you can discover more podcast episodes and gain access to additional information about the Sanford Civics Initiative. I'm your host, Javier Mejia. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at Javier Mejia C and connect with me on LinkedIn as Javier Mejia Cubillos. Until next time, stay engaged. Thank you and take care.